All right, we continue our look at the life of Joseph here on Sunday morning. Uh, This summer, we have today and next week. So I invite you to take a Bible in hand and turn to page 33. That's most likely where Genesis 42 begins for you. But our extended reading this morning will be from later, uh, particularly in verses uh, 12 through the end of 44. So that'll be our, our main reading here in a moment, and I'll explain. And actually... Um, we will not touch 45. We'll leave ourselves on something of a, of a cliffhanger with some suspense. And so uh, we'll pick it up and that will be ca- part of our closing of the life of Joseph next week. We'll look at 45 through 50. Now, if you haven't been here, And if you happen to be unfamiliar with the story of Joseph here in the book of Genesis, it begins with the 17-year-old boy who is thrown into a pit by his brothers. And from that pit, he is then sold into slavery in Egypt. And while in Egypt, he ends up in prison. And then from prison, he ends up the prime minister of Egypt. That was the last three weeks. And then that, we see God's hand at work, though For the characters in the story, it is a hidden hand, but we can see it very clearly as we walk through the text of Scripture. We see God at work and using suffering, temptation, and then waiting for Joseph. Now today, we think a lot about the brothers. And we see God at work and the brothers, his 11 brothers. And how is God at work? Well... God's grace is testing these men here in these chapters. And chapter 42 through 44. And that's what we'll be thinking about this morning. That's not all we're thinking about. In 43 and in 44, in those chapters, we see one of the greatest examples of a life transformed by the grace of God in all of the Bible. So that's what's before us this morning. Before we begin reading God's Word, let's ask for God's help in hearing. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, this is Your Word, and we come to it hungry and desperate. It is what our souls need, the very bread of life. It is Your Son, Jesus that we come here hungry for, panting for. We turn away from the things this week that we have sought to satisfy ourselves with, and we look to Christ in your word to build us up, to convict us of our sin, to comfort us of your promises. And we ask that if there will be those who don't know Christ among us, that this word would be a word that would convert their souls. We ask this to be done by your Spirit, and in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm going to take us through, but we're not going to go verse by verse, but I want to hit all the points of the story, and I want us to highlight key passages in these chapters, and then we'll come to our reading in chapter 44. So follow along the best you can. If you want to, you could just turn to 44 and kind of listen as I, as I take us through the story. It begins in chapter 42, verse 1 and 2. There it says, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, 
he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. Remember that it's a time of famine. Jacob sends 10 sons. He thinks Joseph is no more. And he withholds his youngest, Benjamin, from going because he fears losing him. Now, Joseph, when these, his 10 brothers arrive, it's been over 20 years since he's seen them. He recognizes them. They do not recognize him. He treats them as strangers. And the text says he spoke roughly to them as they bowed down before him. And then in verse 9 of 42, And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And the, ver- the brothers try to convince them that they are not spies, but they are brothers, and that their youngest one remained with their father, and they lost one brother. And so Joseph threatens to keep them in custody, keep nine of them, and send back one to recover and bring back the youngest. And then he ultimately decides that he would put all ten in custody, and the text says, to test them. Then picking up in verse 18 of chapter 42, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he, Joseph, turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Now, as they are traveling back to Canaan, they discover that the money they tried to pay was put back in their sacks. And back home, they try to explain to Jacob what has happened and that they cannot go back and get more grain without Benjamin going with them. Reuben, who's the oldest, offers to protect Benjamin and take him back to Egypt. And that if that doesn't work out, Reuben tells his father Jacob, well, if I can't bring back Benjamin safe you can kill my two sons, which is terrible. And then verse 38 of chapter 42. But he said, my son shall not go down with you. This is Jacob, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Well, Joseph has not sent the brothers with enough grain to last too long, and the famine is severe. The grain runs out, and Jacob wants to send them back to Egypt. And the brothers remind their father that they can't go back without Benjamin. Jacob gets upset that they ever mentioned Benjamin to the Egyptian governor. And then Judah steps forward, and Judah says, I'll be a surety for Benjamin. I will make sure and pledge for his safety that he will return. 
And if he doesn't, then you may blame me, Judah, forever. And so Judah convinces his father to send Benjamin. And Jacob then says, bring these gifts. Bring back the money that you found in your sacks that you originally tried to pay for the grain. And then Jacob prays over his boys before he sends them. In verse 14 of chapter 43, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother, Simeon, and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And the brothers arrive in Egypt. Joseph recognizes them and he sees Benjamin. And so he orders the steward of his house to prepare a feast The brothers are concerned that they're being brought into the governor's house. They don't know it's Joseph. They're concerned that they're being brought in to be punished because they have the money that they intended to buy grain with. And so they attempt to return the money from the first trip. And they go to the steward of Joseph's house. And they say, here's the money. And the steward replies, the Egyptian steward replies with peace to you. He says, shalom. Do not be afraid. Your God and the Father, and the God of your Father, has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them, who was being held. Verse 23 of chapter 43. The brothers are cleaned up. They're brought in for the meal. And then in verse 26 of 43, when Joseph came home, They brought into the house to him the present that they had with them. And they bowed down to him to the ground. Joseph's first dream, where the leaven stalks of grain bow down to his, has just been fulfilled. And then Joseph asks his brothers about how they've been doing and how their father is doing. And then in verse 29 of 43, He lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Now, Joseph regains his composure Egyptians don't eat with Hebrews, and so he seats his brothers at another table, but he gives them assigned seats, and he he sits them according to birthright, from oldest to youngest. Now, if he was truly a stranger to them, doing this by accident would be one in like 39 million chances of this happening. And then verse 34 of 43. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. They have a feast. He loads them up with grain. But then he tells his steward, take my silver cup and put it in the youngest brother, Benjamin. Put it in his sack. And as the brothers leave in the morning, then Joseph tells his steward, go recover the cup and accuse Benjamin of stealing. 
When the steward catches up to the brothers, they deny taking the cup, and they basically say that whoever would repay your governor evil for the good that he showed us should be put to death. And that's where we pick up in Genesis chapter 44, verse 12. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. And when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground, and Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we speak to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. For only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead. And he alone left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord, And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write the eternal truth on all our hearts. 
Two things to focus on in these chapters, just two. I want us to think about the Benjamin test and the transformation of Judah. The Benjamin test. Here we see God at work testing his people. Now, specifically in chapter 42 and verses 15 to 16, Joseph said he is going to test his brothers to know if they are lying or not when they claim not to be spies. It makes sense. It's odd that 10 brothers of various ages would show up and claim to be brothers of one man. So this is, this is reasonable for a governor in this situation to say, you're just the first line of our enemies that are coming to see where we are vulnerable. So in one sense, Joseph is being a good governor in Egypt. But we know that Joseph knows who these men are. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes right now. How would you have handled this situation? Maybe similar to how you've handled pain in your family or among your friends. There's, I think, two ways that we're tempted to handle situations like this. One is avoidance, right? Joseph could have kept his identity secret and said, I don't want to have anything to do with these dysfunctional scoundrels. And even out of compassion, he could have sent them back with plenty of grain. Just hope that it would have been well for Jacob, his dad, and Benjamin, his beloved younger brother. And just avoided it. Don't you and I sometimes feel like that's the one way to handle conflict and dysfunction and sin in our families, and in our friend groups. Or, there's a real test of Joseph's power here, isn't it? He has basically all the power in the world. How will he exercise such authority? Will he seek revenge? Oh, he could humiliate these men. He could strip them as they stripped him. He could throw them in a pit. He could keep them in prison forever. He can execute them on trumped up charges of being spies, enemies of the state. He has the power to do so. But remember in chapter 41, he named his firstborn son Manasseh, saying that he forgot the hardship of his father's house. God has been preparing him for this moment and his posture towards them is one of seeking reconciliation. But he must be careful. He doesn't know if his brothers have repented of their past crimes. If he reveals his identity too soon, they may go back to his, their father and try to still cover up their crime against Joseph some way. Or they may go back and seek vengeance against Benjamin. He doesn't know who he's dealing with here. His last encounter with these guys was that they were exceedingly cruel and unfaithful men. He needs to test them to see if there is fruit of real, genuine repentance. So we see a series of skillful tests that Joseph, in his position of power, is able to orchestrate. Now there is a caution 
that we must not be confused, that we do not try to manipulate others even when we have their best interest in mind. That's not the point that we should take away from Joseph's dealings, but it is important to recognize that as we seek to reconcile with others, that we do so willingly but carefully, given the opportunity for the fruit of repentance to be born in order that trust can truly be rebuilt. So Joseph approaches them with a stern countenance, but we see over and over in the text that he is filled with tender affection, desiring to be reconciled. Chapter 42, verse 24, he cries and weeps. In chapter 43, verse 30, he cries and weeps. And then in the next chapter, he again weeps. Joseph is testing because he's motivated by love for his family. Now, the brothers have a series of tests. The first one that Joseph puts them in is three days custody in prison. It's in chapter 42, verse 17. These brothers didn't get along very well, and so let's see how they do put them in prison for three days together, and if they start finger-pointing and blaming one another and causing a problem in prison. They don't. Then, the next test is that he says, all right, I'll send nine of you back. I'll keep one. And he keeps Simeon to stay behind. But then as they leave, the money that they pay for the grain gets put back in their sacks. And they realize, oh no, they didn't keep the money we gave them. Somehow it's back with us. And what's the test that Joseph is setting up here? Well, these are the same men that sold him for 20 shekels of silver. And so now he's withheld one of the brothers and saying, what's more valuable, your money or Simeon? It's a test. Then when they come back and Simeon is restored to them and they're, they're feasting in the father's house, uh, Pharaoh's house, uh, I'm sorry, Joseph's house. Joseph's house. They're sitting down. They're enjoying themselves. They're making merry, enjoying wine and good food. And then Joseph sends five times the portion to Benjamin. So everyone's got filet. He gets the whole tenderloin. They have fine wine. He gets the finest wine. And remarkably, it doesn't stir up jealousy and envy among these men. Like the time it did when Joseph got the coat of many colors. They just celebrate. They're happy. Joseph is, is testing him, saying, okay, if I treat my little brother Benjamin with the favoritism that my father treated me, how are you going to respond now? We see God's grace starting to bubble up and emerge in these men. But finally, he plants his silver cup in the youngest brother, Benjamin's sack. And here it is. He is found condemned and guilty. Will the brothers just leave him to die as they handed off Joseph into slavery? 
Here's another opportunity. The little brother who doesn't really contribute much to the family, who the father dotes on and loves, we could just leave him to slavery and be on our way with our food. He is guilty. It appears as if he stole the cup. But through these series of tests, we see that the brothers start recalling their story with Joseph. In 42, 21, what did they say? They said, Remember the time we heard our brother in distress and we didn't listen? And then when they find the money in their sacks, they, they say, what has God done to us? That's in Genesis 42, 28. That's the first time that in this story, the brothers say the name of God. Through this series of testing, we don't know all that the Lord is doing, but we see that he's beginning to convict these men of their great sin against Joseph and expose them for who they are to themselves and their need for repentance and mercy. Proverbs 17, verse 3 says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold. And the Lord tests the heart. The same way that silver is refined in a crucible and that gold is refined in the furnace, the Lord uses test to refine His people, to lead them into repentance. And these tests come in ways of, of discipline and chastisement at times, but the Lord is seeking for His people to know their heart the way that He knows their heart. God knows every thought that you and I have ever had. And He knows the true intent and motives of each of our hearts. We don't. But through the course of life, He orchestrates things in His providence to unearth to us the true conditions of our hearts. Why is that? It's to lead us in greater repentance and holiness and Christlikeness. And so for these brothers, it's a very personal test and your good heavenly Father orchestrates your life because He wants to uproot sin out of it. Remember in James chapter 1, Temptation is spoken of as a seed that then once conceived brings forth sin and then death. And in each of our lives, sin has tried to take root and it has a vast root system. It is the remaining presence of sin until we see Christ as a vast root system. And oftentimes, we just want to lop off the top. It's kind of like every year I have to cut down the hostas in my front yard so that they survive winter and then they sprout up again in the spring. That's a good thing, but when we treat our sin like that, it's a bad thing. Lop off the top, springs up again. But God has ordained these tests to help identify the roots of their greed, their jealousy, their bitterness, their anger, so that He could rip them up one by one, that they wouldn't sprout again. And your Heavenly Father is doing the same thing in you if you belong to Jesus. Quoting from Proverbs chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews says, For the Lord disciplines the ones He loves and chastises every son He receives. Verse 10 of chapter 12 of Hebrews, He disciplines for our good that we may share in His holiness. Each of these tests, it is part of God's discipline to these brothers in order that they might become 
holy, uprooting sin in their lives. So Joseph's tested, the brothers are tested by Benjamin, and Jacob's tested by Benjamin, isn't he? This is a man, at this point in the story, has been overcome with grief upon grief. He's lost his, his dearest wife, Rachel. He believes that Joseph has been torn by wild animals. He cannot imagine parting with Benjamin. Since it is fair to say that this poor grieving man is unwilling to trust the Lord, and many of us can relate to that, right? Put in his shoes, we wouldn't want to let Benjamin go. But ultimately for Jacob, what he thinks is dear love for Benjamin is something of a parent's selfish love. Why? If he doesn't entrust Benjamin to the Lord, everyone but Joseph will die of famine. It is a severe mercy to Jacob that God would require him to give up his son. But what did Jacob come around to? We read it in 43 verse 14 of Genesis. He says, God Almighty, God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. May he send back your other brother in Benjamin. God Almighty. This is the way that God announced himself to Abraham in Genesis 17. Here's the beginning of Jacob recovering the patriarchal faith that was handed down to him. And he's reminding himself of the God of his father. God Almighty, who entered into covenant with Abraham, he now cries out to God Almighty and entrusts his beloved son to him. He's saying, God, I remember that you have promised good to our family, and I must trust you. He has come to accept I cannot accomplish the good, and Lord, I must trust you to do it. Isn't this every parent's test? We, we got to witness the baptism of two covenant children, covenant baptism this morning. Every parent, every child, at some point, to some degree, you'll experience this test of wanting to hold on to your child tightly and open the fist and entrust them to the Lord. And finally, Jacob does it. Jacob eventually is willing to let Benjamin go for the good of others. And here Jacob, we need to note, is unlike our Heavenly Father. Because our Heavenly Father unreluctantly sent Jesus. As the Puritan John Trapp put it beautifully, God loved his son Jesus infinitely more than Jacob did Benjamin. And he exalts his love far above that of any earthly parent which is but a spark of his flame, a drop of his ocean. And yet he freely parted with him to certain and shameful death for our sakes. You may love your child, but it's but a spark of God's love for his son. 
You may think you deeply love your child, but it's barely a drop compared to the ocean of the Father's love for the Son. And yet, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, His only begotten Son. O sinner, how deep the Father's love for us. The testing of Benjamin, the testing through Benjamin. Now we come to the transformation of Judah. Now this is one of the greatest stories of saving grace in all the Bible. Who is Judah? Well, he's the fourth oldest son of Jacob. His mother was Leah. His name means basically praise the Lord. But up until chapters 43 and 44, there has been nothing praiseworthy at all about Judah. Remember in chapter 37, he cold-heartedly conspires and leads his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. Then, we didn't look at it, but we referenced it when we looked at chapter 39, but in Genesis 38, Judah seeks the services of a prostitute and is deceived and ends up impregnating his daughter-in-law. But, as several of you early on in the series have pointed out to me, it's Judah's tribe, it's his descendants that become the tribe of kings. He's the ancestor to King David. He's the great ancestor of Jesus, the promised Messiah King. What happened to Judah? We all have to be wondering, what happened Now, we're not given a total play-by-play, but we're shown the fruit of God's saving grace at work in his heart. In verses 18 to 34, which we read in chapter 44, this is the longest speech in all of the book of Genesis that anyone gives. It's as if Moses is telling us, listen to this man. And not so much get caught up in the particulars of what I have to say, but listen to how his words reveal how I've been at work in his heart. Now earlier, the brothers, when they're confronted with the cup dilemma and test, they all confess their guilt. Judah's among them. He's come under the conviction of sin. But as you listen to this speech, he no longer struggles with the fact that Jacob loves Benjamin more than him. The favoritism wasn't right, but his heart has been set free. He no longer holds a grudge and is no longer envious. But here it is. The second thing is he offers himself as a substitute. This is the first time in all of Scripture that someone, a human, offers themselves as a substitute for another human. In Genesis 22, remember that God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. But at the last moment, God provided a substitute, but the substitute was a ram. Here God seems to be making the picture a little bit clearer for us of how he would redeem sinners. And it's fascinating. When Judah approaches Joseph here, Judah does not seek cheap grace from Joseph. He might have said, 
look, here's the cup. The cup's been returned. Can we let bygones be bygones and just forget about it? It's a young man. He was immature. He didn't know what he was doing. No. What does Judah do? He offers himself to suffer vicariously for Benjamin's sake so that Benjamin might receive mercy without denying justice. It prefigures the substitutionary sacrifice of the one who will descend from his tribe, Jesus, whose cross will satisfy divine justice for sin and securing mercy and eternal salvation for his enemies. His enemies that he will turn into brothers. So, through his cross, Jesus turns sinners into children of his Father. I mean, what, is, what is Judah offering for the sake of Benjamin? He's saying, I'll take his guilt so that he might be forgiven and pardoned. He's willing to substitute himself in order that Benjamin might be justified. He's willing to say, yes, you are demanding slavery for his sin, but I will pay the price that he might be set free from his chains of condemnation and sin. He's offering himself to redeem Benjamin. And he may say, yes, O governor of Egypt, you are right to be angry and just to have wrath towards this young man who has returned your kindness with such an evil. But I will bear that wrath, securing propitiation for his little brother. What motivates Judah? Well, we see that he's come to love Benjamin. But what really stands out in his speech is his love for his father. The word father on the lips of Judah in this speech is said 14 times. He gives his life for the condemned willingly because he loves the condemned, but more so he loves his father. Before he didn't care about the pain that would be caused to his father by selling his beloved son into slavery with Joseph. And now his heart is gripped and he could not imagine seeing his father going down to his grave mourning. How great is the love of the son for the father. Judah is transformed from a cold-hearted, greedy, sexually immoral man into a man motivated and compelled by love. And here in Judah now, love excels. The Lord, by His grace, is making him worthy of kingship. But by grace, he too, like Joseph, has become a humble servant motivated by love. What a wonderful transformation. What a great testimony to the grace of God. Who could have predicted such a transformation? Who could have recognized that the hand of God was at work when Judah and his brothers sold Joseph into slavery? We'll sing here in a moment. Deep in his dark and hidden minds, 
with never failing skill. He fashions all his bright designs and works his sovereign will. In hindsight, everyone can see God's never failing skill in accomplishing his bright design and graciously saving and reuniting these brothers. And you, be certain that God has bright designs, a redemptive design for you. And do not be discouraged that oftentimes it's only in hindsight you can see the hidden hand of God working. Such a marvel. Look at what the Lord has done in this family. We'll see the full reunion next week, but look at what the Lord, by His grace, can do in a family. Your family is not beyond the grace of God. And look what the Lord has done in a vile, terrible sinner like Judah. Your friend... None of us are beyond the grace of God. You are not beyond the grace of Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, you have given us such a wonderful gospel of peace that those who are at war with you and who have hated you, just as these brothers hated Joseph and despised their father, Lord, you can save such men as these. You love to save men, women, boys, and girls who were caught and trapped in their sin, rescuing them, making them into new people, adopting them into your family and bringing glory to your name by making them trophies of your grace. Oh Lord, may we serve and love and praise with this view of the gospel, of what you have done, what you are doing in our lives, and what you will do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.